Hi, and welcome to the Homeopathy Health Show. I am Atik Bhati, a fourth-generation homeopath with over 20 years of professional experience in this field of healing. In the Homeopathy Health Show, I'll be talking all things homeopathy and natural, with guest interviews, tips and advice, and answering some of your questions. Homeopathy is truly a unique, complementary system of healing suitable for all ages, young and old. I'd love to hear from you and welcome your questions on homeopathy and how it can or has helped you. Feel free to email me at health at liketreatslike.co.uk or visit www.liketreatslike.co.uk for more information. Once you're there, take a look at the Knowledge Academy and blog section where you will find interesting information. Both sections are growing day by day, so always check back. So let's begin today's show on UK Health Radio, the world's number one talk health radio, real feel-good radio. Hi, how are you? I hope you're well. And of course, as always, I sincerely hope and pray it remains that way. So I do hope you've had an enjoyable week. Uh, seems to go so fast, doesn't it? There's so much going on all the time. Um, but it's all good, of course. Now, I had the pleasure of speaking with Herman Kepler last week, and uh, he's the founder and principal of the College of Naturopathic Medicine. So I do hope you were able to tune in. Remember, all episodes of the Homeopathy Health Show are available to download and stream on demand from ukhealthradio.com. And you can check out my socials, of course, at Like Treats Like across TikTok, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook to find out more information and also to keep up to date actually with upcoming episodes because I am um, sending out uh, short teaser trailers for the radio shows which uh, actually are receiving a lot of interest um, around the world. So that's always nice, isn't it? Now this week I'm going to be speaking with Colin Griffith and again this was another fascinating conversation. So Without further ado, um, let me introduce you to Colin Griffith. Colin studied homeopathy in 1989 in London and has been working as a homeopath in East Sussex and Kent since 1991. Beginning working from home and in a community hall in Tenterden in Kent, he built his practice over 20 years, treating patients and also teaching and lecturing on the subject. He is now a world-renowned homeopath, having travelled to the USA, Japan and Europe to lecture and treat patients. Colin has written several best-selling books on homeopathy, which have been distributed worldwide. Colin, welcome. Wonderful. Thrilled to have you on the show. How are you? I'm really well. I'm thrilled to be here too. Lovely to talk about homeopathy. It is, isn't it? It's the best subject in the world. (laughs) Well, it's never-ending. It is. Now, right off the mark, I have to say that I do have three of your books on my shelf. They are The Companion to Homeopathy and both volumes of The New Materia Medica. And you'll be happy to know that I refer to them quite often. Okay. (laughs) And we will be actually talking later on about um, your upcoming book. So I look forward to some more details on that as well. Actually, I wanted to start, Colin, with asking you that uh, before homeopathy and holistic therapies, you were in fact a classical music composer. So uh, fascinating. I find that very, very fascinating. So tell us more. Um, It sounds fascinating. It sounds romantic. Uh, Actually, it was extremely frustrating. I started 
playing the piano when I was about seven, seven years old. I found an old Broadway piano that nobody else wanted. And I just, it was, it was an amazing toy. I, I hardly needed yeah. toys after that. Um, and over the years, I studied piano and not very successfully, I have to say. And I eventually found a teacher of composition. And um, I found it as enveloping as homeopathy. At the time, of course, I never thought that there was anything else that I ever wanted to do or to be. The idea of standing in front of uh, an ensemble or in front of an orchestra and hearing your own sounds, it's an extraordinary experience like no other I've ever had. Um, but it's a very impractical way of life. And frankly, I knew that uh, with four children, by that time I had four children, it was a very, it's a dicey business. And there, has, there was a huge change, a sea change in the world of classical music at the time that I was beginning to write my scores. So I did have some performances. I had a, you know, some recordings on the radio and it seemed to be working quite well, but there was something missing. I didn't know what it was. I felt very frustrated, also quite existentially worried. Uh, what was I doing wrong? Uh, of course, I wasn't doing anything wrong. I was just learning. I was practicing. I was just being a composer. But um, because I needed to make some money, I fell into homeopathy by mistake. I went to stay with a friend in London who was doing the same thing as I was. We, I was a teacher of English as a foreign language to keep the wolf from the door. I did that for about six years and I got incredibly bored with it. I met lots of lovely people, but the actual teaching process drove me bonkers. <laughs> anyway, so um, I went to London and this person I was staying with said, what are you reading? And I was reading a book on alternative medicine by Brian Inglis. And we'd started talking about homeopathy. And in the back, there were names and addresses. And I said, well, what about it? You know, you, you are as dissatisfied with teaching as I am. What sh should we have a look? And so all the information came to me and I thought, okay, well, let's give it a go. I found myself in a hotel in London being interviewed for a place at the College of Homeopathy, which no longer exists, but it was the first of the big colleges. And uh, Barbara Harwood and Robert Davidson were there, were the principals. Mm. And they just simply said, well, although you're here for an interview, it's, it's you who should inter interview us. I didn't really understand what was going on. I was fairly naive. And I ended up by saying, look, I've got to catch a train. So how much can, how much can I expect to earn at the end of the first year? Mm. And Robert, bless his heart, gave me some impossible figure, which I actually believed, took it to the bank manager, and they paid for my course. That's how I started. And I've never looked back. I, the first week at the College of Homeopathy was just jaw-dropping. And I remember meeting my wife on the on, on the station when I got home. Uh, she came to fetch me and, and she said, are you all right? And I said, yeah, I think I am. I think I found what I want to do. And over the years, I realized that um, homeopathy is composing people. It's finding harmony in people. It's finding out what, what are their vibrations and and. How do they sound? Metaphorically, how do they sound? Uh, why are they a cracked bell today? And uh, I've, I have to say, I've been 
entertained in the best possible sense of the word ever since by listening to people's difficult harmonies and um, thinking of it or maybe not thinking of it but feeling my way through homeopathy in that kind of musical analogy I, has helped me a lot so uh, yes it, it's nice to be asked about composition but it is my past you know it's very eloquently put you talk about uh, harmonics and, and harmony and uh, the different vibrations that we all have and every individual of course <laughs> has is is vibrating at, at his or her own frequency and um, yes. we find nowadays don't we certainly within the 21st century this connected world of technology that we have become highly strung yeah and uh and you know it's a it's a state of flux and it's it's not good is it it's not it's just not good for us and we yeah. can't get away from technology because it's now part of life but yeah. the damage that potentially is happening which we're not going to perhaps realize now but in the second or third generations after us is um is a worry isn't it it is uh, but i also think that uh, we can we can continue the musical analogy in that the tempo the tempo of our modern world is much too fast mm. the rhythms of our modern world are far too um difficult to you know, when you think of rhythm in music, you th there is an inevitability uh, of the connection with dance and movement. And somebody who is well in a very soric, solid, constitutional, grounded way, their, their rhythms are not that fast. Or if they are quick, quite naturally quick, that person is well if they can move and dance to them in an appropriate manner for their particular mission in life so I, I am particularly worried about the effects of electromagnetic frequencies of mm. wi-fi of technology in general uh, it's too speeding it's like some conductors these days who you know they take well-known pieces at such a lick very exciting very exciting but then you think actually i've just had a breathless time listening to that mm. <laughs> I don't want anything too slow. You know, you don't have to be carbish about everything, but it is it is necessary to, to listen to the composer through his music. So, in other words, the patient through their natural speed. I hope that you, isn't too highfalutin. But you, do you come across, um, it, it, I'm fascinated by, by what you're saying. Do you find that today, um, you know, with, with like you said, everybody is at a fast tempo and everybody is is highly strung. And you know, yes. that's what I've certainly seen. Everybody is on edge. And it, it's not just because of uh, various factors, but it, it's just to do with lifestyle. I mean, yeah. you start on a Monday and before you know it, it's Sunday. And this <laughs> never, 20 years back, you know, I used to have a really long day, um, a productive day. And now... I have a long productive day, but the days are just going by so, so fast. And it's they such are. a worry. Yes. Yes. You can't fit it all in. Dare I say it, but technology seems to not have helped. I know there's so fantastic uh, um, technology is fantastic. Mm. It's enabling us to communicate. It's done so much good. But there's always a flip side to everything. And the flip side is that we're so connected that it's actually difficult to 
disconnect for yes. for uh, oneself. So, uh, no pun intended, but you have to make time for time to make time for time. Exactly, and, so. uh, and that's a real worry, isn't it? Yes, very much so. Do you come across uh, um, Do you come across this quite often? Because you're speaking about tempo, and and what's your take on this of of how how to slow things down? I mean, is there any way that we can slow things down, or is this just the norm, the new norm? Ah, but I, I think I think that's what patients are coming for. It's one of the things that patients come to see us for. What they're coming to see us for is to a, a return to their true constitutional rhythm hmm. and if they find that constitutional rhythm well you know one patient may be at a completely different speed from another I, I mean I know people who are very driven but it's very natural but I know people who are very very ponderously slow but they so much prefer that and they get more done so every individual when we listen to them uh, what we need to do is find out what it is that or, or how they get back to the natural rhythms of themselves. Uh, often uh, this is complicated. I'm sure all your homeopathic speakers would say this. It's complicated by miasmatic inheritance. It's complicated by circumstance, current circumstances. Not always in, is it possible to change those, but to help people to find their rhythm within their complicated situations and at the same time address miasmatic history, which is, of course, another type of rhythm. That, to me, is, is what my job is all about. Uh, you know, we, when, we, when we learn homeopathy, uh, we're often, when we start, don't we? We start with like, treats like is cure. But yeah. I'm not so interested in cure. I, it sounds her heretical, but cure is the, it, that's the destination. But I don't think people can reach their destination unless they do the journey. So I'm very happy when they come and tell me they're cured, but I sort of almost don't believe it. It's nice when I can. Um, <laughs> people have long journeys to make, not so much with children, but certainly people who come to see us in their 40s, 50s, 60s, there's such a lot of tapestry to go through it uh, is very complex it is Ew. very very complex you're absolutely right we have become very complex haven't we with uh, uh, like you mentioned electromagnetic frequencies the lifestyles that we live frustrations even joy and happiness but sometimes even that can you know backfire yeah um, you can't laugh all the time because then you cannot take things seriously um, That's not but if you're very serious then of course you know that means there's possibly dare i say you know a, a lack of joy um that may may, may exist family yeah. structures are so complex nowadays aren't they and uh, very very complex yeah i mean how many times have we you, i'm sure you've experienced this where the mobile is ringing and you just can't answer it for whatever reason and it actually upsets the other person oh you didn't answer my phone mm. and i remember you know back in the 80s and 90s you know when we used to i used to have those the old phones of course like yeah. we all did and uh, if you didn't answer the phone, you didn't answer the phone. But now, nowadays, it can become a, a, a means of argument, a, a real argument. You know, people have, uh, couples have broken up because of it, that someone didn't answer the phone. Yes. But nobody thinks about the real reality of it, that you could be in the car, you could be could be having a shower, you know, could yeah. be taking a nap. And uh, that, well, that's like what me, I was referring to. Like me, people, people now know that I'm, I don't answer the phone. 
so I don't <laughs> get that argument. I I loathe mobile phones. I will use them. In fact, I find them very useful for WhatsApp um, yes. sessions when I treat people abroad. But uh, as a means of communication, I won't do it. Well, I, I, I'm pleased that you answered my WhatsApp messages. So thank you, <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that. I'm, I'm no chuffed to bits about that. Now, I wanted to move on to something very interesting, uh, an interesting part of your life as well, which was to do with post-graduation of homeopathy. Did you go into actual uh, practice immediately after, or, or was there a time where you perhaps uh, sort of thought about going into practice? And No, no, I went straight into practice. It was a curious kind of time. It was very odd, in fact, because in the College of Homeopathy, there was a three-year full-time course. And uh, it was supposed to finish in June, but actually the course ran out of steam. We started with 34 students and we ended up with seven actually right. graduating. So the attrition rate for students was enormous. And I have noticed this happening, that lots of people start off with enthusiasm. Um, and I do think that homeopathy has got to be a vocation. It's almost as if we have to be called to do it. And I don't think there's anything special in that. It's like any other vocation. And when it, when our course finished, I was faced with having to write a thesis. And this thesis was going to be about 35,000 words, and it would be marked and read and put in a box and never seen again. And frankly, I wasn't prepared to do that. Mm. Because, um, you know, with four children, and lots of other things going on, I still was writing music at that time. I just didn't feel I had the resources internal resources to to do a thing like that so i asked the powers that were at the, at the college could i please start up a clinic a drop-in clinic in my local town uh, and present 10 cases which are supervised by a homeopath of my choice and that you agree to so the college said, yes, but we have to have a 10-point plan. And it included insurance. It included the mentorism, you know, with... I, I actually chose Kate Diamantopoulou, the late Kate Diamantopoulou, to support me. And um, I did have a friend who helped me to start with. She then emigrated to New Zealand. So it, it was after a while, it was me on my own. And we had this village hall and... We stayed open every after, every Friday afternoon with absolutely nothing to do. The doors were open, but nobody knew about us until mm. week six. A very, very charming lady came, put her head around the door and said, oh, are you open? And we practically ran at her and said, yes, of course we are. <laughs> it turned out that her son had measles. But she said, oh, no, I think he's got mumps. The doctor thinks it's measles, but I think it's mumps. Right. And I said, well, he can't have both. He must have one or the other. Anyway, we treated him with the appropriate remedies, and it turned out he had measles. But straight away after that, he had mumps, literally. Within oh. a day of the measles rash going, he started mumps. So this was an introduction to me of the activity of practice. It was hectic after that. And uh, suddenly we, were, we had an influx of, of patients to the extent that within a year, we had four tables with different homeopaths and it was humming every Friday afternoon. So that was an enormous learning experience because we had to think on our feet. We didn't have time. We just had to get on with it. And I'm sure we made 
terrible blunders, but everyone was very forgiving. And it ran for 11 years. Wow. That's a, that's a really years. healthy, healthy, productive time, isn't it? It was fantastic. And mm. I, I, I learned homeopathy at speed, uh, having just talked about speed being a bad thing. Uh, actually, <laughs> you know, I, I had lots of um, first aid books next to the telephone. And somebody would ring up and I'd say, give me five minutes, I'll ring you back. And I, that's all I had, because the phone would ring again. Mm. So it was, it was extraordinary. I had the energy to do that then. So that was my post-grad effort. I think being in the, the deep end with homeopathy is just, it's just fascinating because I, my uncle practiced homeopathy in um, Nairobi in East Africa. Yeah. And I visited him several times. So he's, sadly, he's passed away now. But um, he had a very large practice there. And it was, I can just imagine as you were sharing, you know, the situation in the hall, it was like that. And it was, you know, the bell would ring, the phone would ring, the mobile would ring, and then the bell outside would ring again. And yeah. it would just carry on. And I was thinking, because he was running left, right, and, you know, back there, uh, consulting with the patient, coming back, making the remedies, and the phone would ring, and someone would ask something else. And But it was almost graceful, mm. because it was an opportunity to serve humanity. But the education, the knowledge that, and I'm sure you're going to agree with this, the knowledge that can be gained, I gained so much, just by observation, yes. on, on how to be able to actually manage that, let alone the remedies in the books, but how to actually manage that. And yeah. what I learned was take a deep breath and smile yeah. and just be grateful that somebody has asked for your help yeah. and that yeah. you can actually help, God willing, you know, you can help them back yes. with something, you know? Yes, yes, um, it's true, it's true. <clears throat> I think I was also helped by the fact that I am, um, without doubt, an absolute sucker for stories. Right. I absolutely love hearing stories. And for me, a patient is telling me a story every time they come. Mm. Some of them are not terribly happy stories, of course, but um, watching a story unfold and then move into a different phase, a better phase, one hopes, that keeps me, that really keeps me going, even to this day, you know, 33 years later, it keeps me going today. You know, that's, very interesting because one of the things that I always say, and I've said it on the show, and I was speaking to Herman Kepler and Camilla Sherrin, I mentioned the same things, is that every single individual on this planet has a story to tell. Yep. It just needs us to listen. Yep. And like you said, good or bad, but everybody has a story. And I don't think I've ever left any conversation, even if it's been two minutes, where I haven't actually learned something. You know, you often see these videos, these short videos nowadays are on social media. There's some very, very positive ones where someone's asked about, um, you know, what's your observation on, on life or what's the life lesson? You know, share that with us. And and you find out these things from people and they really make you ponder and dwell. And in fact, the majority of them are so humbling that you think, wow, you know, we're okay. You know, everything is okay. <laughs> yes. it's, we just have to pull our socks up. We have to do the right thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's where homeopathy comes in, because serving humanity, that's what homeopathy is. It's a service to humanity, hearing, having that compassion, the compassion actually that 
Dr. Samuel Hahnemann had all those years ago. And uh, that compassion, without compassion, you, you, it's very difficult, I think, to become a healer because the fact that you can help somebody and when that call comes back saying, I'm really well, thank you. Mm. And it's not because of an ego. It's just humbling, isn't it? Because you think that's so nice. They can get, someone can get on with their life. They, they're not bogged down with this dis-ease and, and mm. the situation that they're in, you know, where perhaps yes. others have let them down, of course. Yes, yes. Um, I Very just lovely. find that fascinating, and that that really keeps, you know, drives me. And and what you've said, I, I love that story and and that real example of um, eleven years of this practice, um, and it's that patience that you observed, isn't it, in the first few weeks? Yeah. And then it just went, you know. It, it, yeah, just took off, took off. I opened it up again after I, I after I got very tired and closed it down at eleven years. When my son and my daughter decided to study homeopathy, I opened it up again. Right. And so I was doing less work and more just sort of, I don't like the word supervising, but sort of mentoring. Mm. They were taking cases and I was sort of standing in the background. Um, and that ran for three years uh, until they decided what they wanted to do with it. But um, yeah, I, I learned from all of it. All of it. Amazing. You've also been involved, uh, Colin, with, um, well, you're actually a founding member of uh, the, the Guild of Homeopaths. And uh, that's also something quite interesting. Please do share with us how you became involved and the thought process behind that. Oh, that's very simple. Janice McAuliffe is an extraordinary homeopath. She's the homeopath I choose to see. And I would say uh, that her... I I'm, hope I'm not putting things in a box here, but her style of homeopathy really suits me. It's what I would term three-dimensional. So it's not your average classical one dose, wait three months. It's much more, it's much more refined. No, that's not the right word. It's much more uh, geared to an individual, his present circumstances and the state of the parts of his body or her body. Mm. What do I mean? So she will look at a, a person's case as if, first of all, they're a constitution. They are a soul within that constitutional state, that there are emotions at play and that all of this is in happening in a body that may in some aspect or other be failing. Obviously not all because, you know, the patient's just walked in, but perhaps an organ is weaker than the rest of the body or a chakra, uh, an energy center is weaker than the rest of the body. So this is a person who chooses to use remedies to support parts that are weaker, that if she only gave a constitutional remedy, then the weaker part either an organ or a chakra, would slow down or even pull back on the rate of cure that would be achievable. So in other words, she will use a constitutional remedy and underneath she will use support and drainage remedies. Right. She will also use remedies that are specific to chakras, energy centers. Because this is the way she works and because we, her, let's say her pupils, I think she would argue with that word she doesn't like the idea of teaching just people who maybe a better word is an acolyte we're followers of 
her thought processes. And there were a number of us all clamoring, saying to her, please, will you, you know, give us some tutorials? And she put us off and put us off. Oh, no, 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 that's not me at all, which was fine. But then eventually we got a, we all got a call. Come to her house at fr on Friday at nine o'clock in the morning and don't be late. Right. So we all foregathered with notebooks and pens and we we're going to sit at her feet. Oh, no, 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 we weren't. We were going to meditate for four hours. First of our meditation sessions and this meditation session as I said, it lasted four hours and it was meant to be an individual healing practice through meditation. So she did meditations based on the ascending uh, ladder, if you like, the ascending hierarchy of chakras in the body, the seven major ones and one or two others. So for two years, we practiced this meditative state every month, for every Friday, uh, once a month. And we learnt enormous amounts about very simple things. She would do the base chakra, for example, and we would take sulfur as we meditated. Then we took calcarb, we took conium, we took, uh, I think we took fossac. We took various remedies, really well-known remedies. And the idea was that we were meditating to get out of this situation our individual situations within the meditation what we most needed and learn of course what else there was to learn about those very famous remedies this graduated after two years to doing remedies that we'd not heard of for example oak and uh, there were others as well this became like a habit and there were I, I will evoke his name the late much lamented martin miles uh, was also part of our group. And he and Janice and various others, we foregathered in my garden in Sussex on a Sunday afternoon. And we just talked about what could come of this. And out of this grew the idea that in the medieval times, people would be apprenticed to, I don't like the word master, but be apprenticed to experienced people. Mm. And this apprenticeship could expand and expand and expand exponentially forever. And the person who gave us this word, the guild, was my mother. She said, oh, that sounds like the guild, the guilds of, of the past. So it, we adopted this word. Not everybody has liked what we did, what we were doing. And uh, the word guild, I think, is a little off-putting because it slightly exclusifies what we were trying to do. Uh, which was a shame because actually we were trying to do the very reverse. But the idea was that we would start a year-long course for graduates who would want to do the same things. In other words, base uh, their course, once a month course for, for 10 weeks on meditations and new medicines that we'd already begun to take and think about. No books were involved at that time. We didn't write any books then. And we found that there were actually too many people asking to come on the course. And it was it was a bad moment because we had to say no to some people, which was a really, you know, it's a very difficult thing to do. And uh, the first year was so exciting for all of us that most of them, I think only two people, didn't go, up, go on to the second year. 
So this became a two-year course, and it became known as the Guild of Homeopaths. Mm. And it lasted for three uh, two-year sessions. And out of it came all these new so-called new remedies and meditative provings. So uh, it was a it was an experience of bumbling around in the dark, really. What on earth are we doing? None of us were trained teachers of homeopathy. Uh, we weren't really interested in that. We just were interested in finding people who wanted to explore chakras, explore how chakras and miasms might work, explore mm. how constitutions and drainage. Well, I, um, you know, your your listeners can just use their imaginations. It just opened everything up for us. And um, of course, with somebody like Martin Miles, who was a very, very experienced homeopath indeed, he just imparted so much extra knowledge. And uh, it was he who uh, really promoted the idea of working with or working using homeopathy to work with and on the thymus gland, which has become a central plank of something that really has interested me more than anything else. And that is ancestral um, energy and how it influences the patient in front of us. I always like to say that the thymus gland energy is a key to a door that leads to a corridor into the past. It's a way of us opening up things the patient wouldn't have any idea of explaining or describing, mm. either because it's lost to their memory or because it's so painful uh, or because it's something that they never knew about, but their parents did. There's so much in the past that if we don't, if we have patients who present us with problems that have roots in the past, there's no way we can avoid using the thymus gland energy. I think that this is very much part of the age we're living in, because in Hahnemann's day, I'm not sure that it would have been terribly useful to know about thymus gland. It, it, Hahnemann did the most extraordinary thing just by causing the inception of, of homeopathy as we know it today. Absolutely mm -hmm. enormous, a prodigious exercise. And he was followed by people who expanded it and expanded it and expanded it. And today, where we're on the very cusp of leaving the age of Pisces and entering the age of Aquarius, which is such a different energy, such a different tempo, that we we have to make that adaptation to do it we must deal with the past we can't leave the past behind uh, and be trapped in our own futures without a connection to what's caused so much damage leads me on actually to the provings and the remedies themselves how have you found them in practice uh, as far as effectiveness is concerned as as far as um them being current to you know the modern ailments that that we we end up suffering from yes uh this is this is a key question because over the years it's actually 30 years that we've been doing these meditative provings uh over those years absolutely of necessity uh, you know there are some we never use uh probably because they're not quite in their time um we've stumbled across them before we're ready to use them before we even have the the sense that they're going to help us however that the major remedies the ones that you mentioned you've got the books on there are two books already published and the next one's going to come out 
so we've got 72 remedies, soon to be 108 remedies, which actually have really stamped their mark on the way we can help patients. All of them have a very um, extraordinary existential role to play. They aren't necessarily remedies like calcarb or sulfur, which are really basic, but most of them have this extraordinary ability to shift people out of some very specific forest of trouble um, and take them towards that place where they can start having remedies that like calcarb and silica and phosphorus and sulfur, which are truly constitutional. And that's their value. I would never expect, let's say, oak or ruby. I would never expect those remedies to be, so to speak, the remedy. I don't believe in that. I'm not a classical enough homeopath to say anyone is one remedy. Hmm. I, I can't do it. It doesn't doesn't sit well with me. It simplifies people far too much. I do think there are basic constitutions to which we all belong. And I think they are all mineral, which is, what, you know, the earth is made of mineral. And everything else comes out of mineral. And I do believe uh, that a really well person needs to get back to their basic constitutional state. That's that's uh, for me. That's an absolute tenet of the homeopathic philosophy. You know, I'm very interested. With you just mentioned mineral, and we know that because of over farming, of course, over production, uh, the population of the world, the soil is so depleted of essential minerals and nutrients. Um, yes. So I'm, I'm very interested. With, with what you've just said about um, the, this mineral element, do you think there's any correlation there between between you know what with over farming and the fact of what we're eating is is really it's not your five a day anymore. It's not nutritious. You know it, the nutrition is not there. The taste may be there, yes, but certainly that that nutrition is not there. But isn't this all part of the speed of the world? Isn't it all part of Mm. Uh, technology and money and uh, putting materialistic things before anything else. We're not really, we, uh, I should step back from what I was about to say, what, what, what I think we are born as, we're not born as material primarily. We, we are a soul in a physical body in order to be here. Mm. And so to uh, concentrate so heavily on materialistic things I think is a, is a big problem. And what's, what's happened is that big business probably unwittingly over the years become so big and so heavy duty and so fast and so all in all consuming that uh, we've all gone along with it. And there's been less and less room for non-material things. We can see that in every everyday life. Uh, look what's happening to religion. Um, look what's happening to uh, education. Uh, everything is being, all standards are being lowered. Everything's being cheapened. Uh, everything's going too fast. I also think um, there's, an, there's an extra thing here. And that is 
that the people who live today have lived through in previous generations, but we have we have uh, inherited a sense of shock and trauma through two world wars, through an extraordinary passage of history, the 20th century, which has been so marked by totalitarianism. I don't wish to get into politics, but simply that this, this whichever uh, politics one has, one takes a different view of this, but nevertheless, this enormous bulk of arrogant, suppressive control, it's very difficult to lift one's head above it, to get fresh air, to feel that one is strong enough to be an individual within that. I find that patients who do best with homeopathy, who reward me with feeling better and being grateful for homeopathy, are the ones who find their individuality enhanced. Now, I wanted to move actually on from the Guild and talk to you about yourself being a lecturer. And I know that you do uh, lecture at the uh, Centre for Homeopathic Education in London. And of course, you have been around the world, as I mentioned in my intro, um, lecturing. So how is that? Tell me what you're involved with as far as lecturing the subjects and and uh, what sort of what motivates you uh, to give back so much through through education? <laughs> because education is 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 the knowledge, isn't it? It's never going to change. It education is. is the key to success. Well, I think I think there's a three pronged answer here. Um, one is I like telling stories as well as listening to them. And uh, I am really entertained. Again, I don't mean that in any flippant way. I'm entertained by uh, talking to people about what patients can achieve. Uh, and I actually prefer talking about patients who don't necessarily have success. I, I'm quite happy to talk about patients that are difficult. In fact, I do difficult case seminars where people come along and they this case is impossible. I don't know what to do with it. And so we spend the time working out strategies. Mm. That's something I, I gained from uh, the late Robert, uh, Robert Davidson. He was a maverick and an extraordinary mind. And he had a prodigiously clever way of getting into difficult cases and he he probably influenced me the most in this and i felt really strongly that um if we can look at cases that seem to defy our best efforts then we're facing the, it's like facing the tsunami you dive into the water and you, you don't get drowned you run away from the tsunami and it drowns you Mm. And so that's my first answer. The second uh, aspect of this is that uh, lecturing isn't for everybody because lots of people find it nerve wracking. And it was pointed out to me some time ago that on my astro astrological chart, I have the moon in Leo. And I said, so what? Oh, well, that's why you do your lecturing, said the astrologer. I said, what? Mm. Well, if you're a moon in Leo then actually you're able to strut the stage and just talk to people. And I, I don't have nerves in front of 40 or 400 people because I would if I were a musician. I would <laughs> if I were a musician, definitely. I did <laughs> a musician. Um, but as a homeopath, because, because I was called, I felt called to being a homeopath, I don't feel the nerves because I feel homeopathy will take me there. I feel the homeopathy 
needs to be explained. It needs to be aired. It needs to be heard. And I don't care how it's, it achieves that. I'm just a conduit for it. And I love doing that. So that's the second thing. The third thing is I don't lecture abroad anymore. I won't go to the States. I won't go to Japan. I, I, I've had my traveling. <laughs> Once again, if I can evoke the astrology, I'm a Taurus. I like my fields with the gate closed. So the CHE, the, the Center for Homeopathic Education, is ideal for me because it's in London and I'm not asked to go every month. And I'm asked to do quite specialist things there. So I cover things like new remedies, but I also do ancestral trauma. It's such a big subject. It's so fascinating. It's so, it's so illuminating. I also do things like uh, the lecture on the midline, which is uh, the lecture about the spinal column and its role, its pivotal role in uh, the health of, of the body and how we can read it. It's readable. And the energy that flows up and down it is readable. And for us to know how that's readable, it's, it's liberating. So I do that kind of lecture as well. Um, so I'm asked to do odd things. What's uh, coming up as far as your new books? What are you working on um, for the future? Okay, so the next book that should be coming out, uh, Watkins is publishing the third volume of the New Materia Medica, which is 36 new remedies that we've been developing over the last mm, five, ten years. And um, I am fascinated because when I look back, we didn't know we were doing this at the time, but when I look back over the three books, each book of 36 remedies has proved to be 36 remedies that are very relevant to what's going on at the time. And this last book, this last th 36 remedies, not all of them, but many of them are really pertinent, really relevant to what has been going on in the last three years. The, the, some of the remedies in this book have been extraordinary eye-openers. They're helping to release people from the thrall of treatments that they may have been obliged to or they chose to have um, that have proved to be less than ideal. So these are 36 uh, new remedies? Yes. Excellent. Yes. This is uh, very, very interesting indeed. And I think uh, you must send me the details and I will share them with uh, the listeners of the Homeopathy Health Show. I'm no looking forward to that very much, actually. And uh, you must write about this midline because I think your practical working knowledge on this, um, when it goes to paper, if it helps others, I think it's it's just brilliant, isn't it? If that it, can it, happen. It's important for me. I, I, you know, I think it's important for, for practice. Now I see my daughter working. She's not only taken on what I've been studying through cranial osteopathy, but she's added her own stuff. Um, Bella is a... Um, she does Chinese um, traditional medicine as part of her shiatsu qigong world. She she's a she's a teacher of those, uh, and she's also a homeopath. And I find her the way she talks about what I'm talking to you about. It's like oh, but we should have known about this all, already because the Chinese knew about it. Mm. <laughs> you see what I mean? So it's just tying up 
things that we should have learnt learnt about or was available to learn about. And now it's here. Colin, I hope your book does come out in May or certainly during the summer months. And uh, I hope that you will actually come back on the show later this year after the third volume of the New Materia Medica and, uh, and speak about some of the key remedies and how they're applicable to us you know, in this current yeah. uh, current year or the current years ahead of us. I should be delighted. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you so much and um, stay safe. And I look forward to speaking to you again. And the same to you all. Thank you. I do hope you've enjoyed the Homeopathy Health Show here on UK Health Radio, the world's number one talk health radio. Tune in next time for more things homeopathy, interviews and segments on the healing possibilities that homeopathy can bring you. And don't forget to visit UK Health Radio online at www.ukhealthradio.com to see the many other amazing shows available to listen live and on demand. Or why not download the app from the iOS and Android stores. Until next time, stay safe and take care.